1: of the world, Steve
0: Fingerstiles! So, welcome to another rendition of The Podcast. I am here once again, always again, and brought to you by First Roll Collectibles. If you're into nerd culture, if you're into sports memorabilia, if you're into wrestling memorabilia, please visit firstrow.ca, use promo code podcast 20 to receive 20% off. They got everything from comic books, to sign sports memorabilia, to sign wrestling memorabilia, anything you need or want. They got it. Best thing is, they ship worldwide even better. They update daily, so please visit them at firstrow.ca. And if you're into video games and books, please visit bossfightbooks.com for great books on classic video games. You'll find titles like Super Mario Bros. 2, Super Mario Brothers 3, GoldenEye007 and so many others. Everything you see on their website is available in paperback and ebook format. So please check them out at bossfightbooks.com. If you're looking for the best supplements and CBD products, visit subs.com. Use promo code THEPODCAST to receive 10% off. They have everything everything from sleep aid to muscle building, anything you need or want that makes you feel great, makes you look great. They got it. They are Legacy Sports Nutrition at LegacySubs.com. And if you want to support me directly, you can visit my merchandise store at tpublic.com or scroll down on today's device you're listening to on. It's embedded right there in that description. Click on the link. It takes you right to the merchandise store. I got everything from hoodies to t-shirts, travel mugs, phone cases, whatever you want. It is there. I got it. You want it. Please buy it. Please support the show. But the most important thing, the easiest thing to do is rate subscribe review on all major platforms most, most specifically apple podcast stitcher tune in soundcloud spotify and iHeartRadio. radio so this week's guest is the co-director of the video game history foundation co-owner of pink gorilla and the author of the soon to be released animal crossing book kelsey lewin hi that's me thanks for having me on the show no thank you for being here how's it going today my friend Good, good. You know, it's a, I, I like when I can do a podcast in the middle of the workday and it counts as work. So uh, <laughs> I'm all good with that. Oh, there you go. You know what? It's true. Some people think of it as fun, some people think it as work. But if it's a combination of both, it makes it even better because two birds, one stone, right?
2: Exactly. It's both.
0: Oh, my God. So, okay. Before we get into anything, I know you're a huge video game buff. You're into everything. Obviously, I named a couple of found, uh, the Foundation and Pink Gorilla and all that stuff. That's socio video games. What got you into video games? What was that first video game that made you click? And you're like, this is what I want. This is what I'm doing forever. I love it. I'm eating it all up.
2: So, I've been playing video games forever, but I really did not think that that was a career or a I mean, and I really never thought about the fact that, like, hey, people play video games, people or people create the video games that we're playing. people, you know, talk about the video games we're playing professionally as a career. and just i really I really didn't think about that for a very long time, but the first game that had a huge impact on me. Um, was Pokemon the original Red and Blue oh, wow. when I was a child? I got okay. a Game Boy Color for Christmas, and I got a copy of Pokemon Blue, and I just played the absolute heck out of that thing. I have still never missed a Pokemon release date to this day. I'm not mm. like at this point. I feel like it's a. Uh, I'm not even crazy into pokemon anymore it just feels like i've been i've been doing it long enough that like i can't break the streak now you know what i mean like I, i get it i get it i can't i can't skip one now i've played all of them um so uh that was definitely the first one that um kind of turned me into a like okay video games are a thing i'm going to have in my life forever but um yeah it really wasn't until i moved to seattle for college um And, you know, was starting to go, I I went to college, I actually thought I was going to go into uh, the sports industry, go into like sports marketing and excited. I I like baseball and football and stuff too. And uh, yeah, it was like, I don't know, probably into my freshman or sophomore year that I was like, hey, the video games are like an industry. Like that's a whole, that's an actual place I could go work. So um, that's kind of what set me on, on that path. And, uh, you know, my the first job I got in college, like the second I moved to Seattle, was I went to go work for a little retro game store down the street called Gorilla Games. Mm-hmm. Uh, became a manager there pretty quickly. And then, of course, now uh, my business partner and I, who uh, was also a manager there, uh, took over as the owners about seven years ago. So it's been a, been a heck of a journey.
0: Oh, that's crazy. And I want to get to Pinkerilla. But before any of that, I have to admit, the only Pokemon game I've ever played in my life is Pokemon Go only because of the whole craze when it first came out and yeah. everything that everyone was playing, right? So I kind of, again, I'm an old school gamer. I came from the Atari and ColecoVision era, so that's what I grew up on. It Nintendo. is a complete age thing. If you, if I you think were so, not right? you a child in 1998,
2: uh, you, you weren't going to, or, you know, earlier if you were in Japan, but if you were not a child, you were not going to get into it for the most part. So that's that's normal.
0: <laughs> and I even tried, like, don't get me wrong, I tried to go back, played some of the games, and I just can't get into it. Now, uh, on the flip side, are you able to go back and play like all these retro games and appreciate what they are and w- what they've done before y- your time?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I think that... You know, things like save states are a uh, <laughs> are a godsend. That you know, we don't necessarily have to beat our heads against the wall playing Mega Man anymore. We can, you know, <laughs> be like, you know what, I'm I'm stuck on this part of the Lion King or whatever, and I'm I am simply going to keep retrying this one part until I've done it, and I don't need to play through. You know the level five times over again i know that like that's controversial to some people they're like no you have to suffer and i'm like no No. i do not have to suffer for my
0: entertainment i really i agree i don't (laughs) no i totally agree and i appreciate that thought because as i get older i just want stuff to be as easy as possible like if there was even something easier than very easy i would play that for example because like no maybe not because you still want a little bit of challenge but i want like you said i I, I don't want to die every five minutes
2: I played Elden Ring. I'm I've been really okay, into Monster bit. Hunter for a really long time. Like I'm I am not uh I'm not anti-challenge, but I am anti uh we have a 1 hour long game, so we better make ah. it as hard as possible so that it's actually a 30
0: hour long game. You know what? That's why I can never really get into like the Ghost and Goblin series because of that yeah. factor alone. It's like you finish yep. the first level, I feel like so accomplished and you get to level two. It's like, yeah, okay. And then how many levels are there? Five, six or something? And it's like, you should be able to clear it, but mm, mm, no.
2: Yeah. And if you can just, you know, if you're allowed to just restart from level two every single right? time, then there you go. But yeah.
0: No, I totally <laughs> get it. I, I I love today's generation of gaming because I think you should have the option for it all. Like to me, a perfect game is absolutely being able to play on very easy to all the way to super difficult, right? W- why not?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I love I love watching people who are super good at, uh, you know, I love watching speedruns of old games and stuff mm, especially. I think right. that, that's, that can be really fun. But um, not something
0: I'm going to invest my limited time in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. Okay, so what's some of your favorite systems or even franchises of all time or something you always go back to, like your comfort game?
2: Um, let's see. Well, favorite system is tough because there's just – there's redeeming things about so many systems, I um, so I, I tend to go for kind of like uh, biggest swath of of stuff, which is like the, you know, I think the DS Lite is a really yeah. incredible system. And then of course it, you know, it's Game Boy Advance and all the DS games that you can play with it. And it's just a really nice form factor. Right. Um, PlayStation 2, of course, just a crazy amount of video games on the PlayStation 2. And then also it's backwards compatible with the PS1. So, I mean, um, but you know, the system I play the most now, of course, is uh, the Switch. I just, I've always been uh, uh, into handheld gaming and just being able to play things uh going back to a kid uh to being a kid i mean i my first systems were the game boy and uh the nintendo 64 um and i played my game boy a lot more than i played my nintendo 64 so um yeah i mean i i like pretty much any any handheld um i have a complete wonder swan collection which is a i assume i'm the only american to have that i i think that um, that's a really, really neat system, um, but, you know, contrary to what a lot of people might think, it is not necessarily my favorite system. I think it's the most interesting system. I don't think it is, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend it over, like, the PS2, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I would be like, no, 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 you have to play these, uh, you know, 15 Wonderswan games that you can play without knowing Japanese, or without knowing, you know, any amount of Japanese yeah. <laughs> over the entire library of uh of the DS or whatever, but um, but it's a very very interesting system. Um, yeah, and then for franchises, I mean, I don't know. Um, I think I, I go back to things like Kirby, to Animal oh. Crossing, to mm-hmm. Mario, and so just kind of like very classic stuff um, pretty often. But yeah. um, you know, I'm a very big Monster Hunter fan. I am uh, into a lot of JRPGs. I really love the Xenoblade series um, and uh you know I, I usually have some very long jrpg going in the background of whatever other game i'm playing at the oh, time okay. so um yeah i don't know I, hopefully that <laughs> that answers all of those questions there i kind of kind of cast the net a little wide
0: no that's great No, oh, that was fantastic okay how about this what are you currently playing and or what's been the most recent great game that you've played
2: I am um, playing two really great games right now. The okay. first is something that I believe was actually just uh, like pulled directly from my brain or created specifically for me, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm the main character of the universe right now because okay. um, have you played Hi-Fi Rush? Do you know this game? No, never heard the, of this. Okay. What? Uh, Hi-Fi Rush is uh, it's out on... I, I, it might be, yeah, it's a Microsoft exclusive, I think. So okay. it's on PC and, and Xbox and stuff. It's on Game Pass. Um, it is a rhythm based action game. And oh. I love rhythm games. Okay. And I love action games, but I'm not particularly good at them. So it sure. being a rhythm based one, which I <laughs> am <laughs> good at, means that I am, you know, flying through stages and pulling off cool combos and feeling really good about myself. And, um, you know, kind of, <laughs> I don't know. It's a It's a very it's a silly game like it's a very uh it's this got like cell shaded graphics and oh, okay. a, uh, just kind of a um a light-hearted vibe to it but it is a super super fun um combination of genres that i, I don't see very often so one of my favorite arcade games is a game called rhythm gun gun which is a mm. uh light gun rhythm game. Okay. And so this it's it's one of those like I just love the like rhythm game mashed with something else sure. genre. I think it's really fun.
0: Okay, so what are some of your favorites of all time then?
2: Favorite rhythm games?
0: Yeah.
2: Um I grew up playing a ton of DDR of Dance Dance Revolution. Okay. So that's um I guess that's probably my go-to answer but my favorite is probably uh either rhythm tengoku um or rhythm fever rhythm heaven whatever uh, it's called the series is called in the us and um uh elite beat agents on the ds oh wow so they i don't know i <laughs> i'm not like a, i'm not particularly good at you know i'm not going to be winning any competitions sure. or anything but i used to be pretty darn good at ddr so don't have the don't have the athleticism for
0: it anymore. Oh my goodness! And obviously, you're part of the season six of the Boss Fight books that's upcoming. You said Animal Crossing is part of it. Parappa the Rapper. Speaking of rhythm games, is also it part is. of that yeah. season. Yeah. and
2: It's a very strong season. It it's, is, uh, and
0: and I'm actually halfway through Parappa, and oh my goodness, like I only played the demo version that came with the magazine. That's all I played, and I never went back to it. But l- reading the book and anyways people stay tuned maybe the author maybe not will be on in a future episode but stay tuned for that but yeah it's a great book season six is killer i think it's on paper without reading any of the books just the titles alone i think is the best season so far i you know
2: i'm a little biased but it's uh, well, of course. i don't, think I, don't <laughs> think I could have picked a better combination of video games to be um highlighted next to so i'm, I'm very very happy um, so it, it's, Animal Crossing, it's yep. Day of the Tentacle, Crap yep. of the Rapper, and Minesweeper, um, which is Crazy to just think. fantastic. I was so excited when I heard that there was going to be a book about Minesweeper, you know, the, the desktop application game that, uh, you, you would probably not assume there's much of a story behind, but, um, yeah, I'm so excited to be the person writing the Animal Crossing story. I uh grew up on that game I spent my formative years moderating an animal crossing form community oh, wow. and um, and that comes up in the book, believe it or not, even okay. though that was that was more animal crossing wild world era than it was gamecube i wasn't I was on all of those forms in the Gamecube era, but I wasn't uh um I wasn't, like, spending every single day after school on, <laughs> on them, you sure. know what I mean, like it was a little bit later. So, um, it, it, extremely formative game for me personally. Um, but also just, it, again, I mean, I, I wrote the book on it, so it's uh, I'm a little biased here, but I think it is one of the most just fascinating and interesting games of all time. Um, and it is so um, tied to the, like, moment in time that it came out of that like we can never have another game that will be quite like it ever again mm. um just due to the way that uh the games have evolved you know like you can't um and I think that's true for a lot of games I mean there's there are a lot of games that um I mean we were just talking about difficulty like there are right. certain uh, You've got some outliers like Celeste. You can have a really, really hard platformer that takes people forever. But like, by and large, that's not really a, a genre that hits anymore because that's True. you know we've just kind of moved past that. But I think Animal Crossing, especially um, in its way of crafting a um, social group and a social life and a community for you without there ever actually being other human beings involved, mm. um, is like. Would be so impossible to pull off these days when the expectation would be, you know, why create a fake community when there are real people all around you we right. can easily connect you to? So
0: that's crazy. Yeah. So, okay, so <laughs> there's been, I believe, five Animal Crossings throughout the years. Which ones do you touch on? Do you touch on all of them, or is it just a more recent one?
2: Um, I, there's a little bit of each of them okay. in there. The book is absolutely about, I say, so I, I this is in the beginning of the book, but I'm going to explain it here because it's, uh, it's complicated. So the book is animal crossing as in the original animal crossing, okay. the controller that is on the cover. because all the boss fight books have a little like uh, controller or t- like something to indicate, you know, what, what system it's system for. or where, you know, where this came from. Yeah. It's a GameCube controller and I actually you know I went back and forth on on this whether or not I should um, you know ask them to change that and it, because Animal Crossing um, originally released on the Nintendo 64 in Japan. So this is a Nintendo 64 game that then mm-hmm. was given several revisions. And what we have is basically, you know, what what we got in the West as Animal Crossing, Mm -hmm. or Animal Crossing Population Growing, as some people call it, because it says that on the box, but it's not really part of the title, um, is uh, it is a version of that game um, running on the GameCube with, like, a bunch of extra features. But it is functionally the same game as that Nintendo 64 game. So um, it's... (laughs) It <laughs> the first game comes out on the Nintendo 64 in Japan. It's called Dobutsu no Mori or animal forest. Mm-hmm. Um, then they pretty quickly, cause this is very close to the end of the Nintendo 64's life cycle. Um, they pretty quickly realized, like, okay, this is doing kind of better than we expected, and like the GameCube's about to come out, and uh, you know we're we're going to put out a slightly updated version of it for the GameCube. Mm-hmm. Um, these were also really expensive cartridges to manufacture because not only are cartridges a million times more expensive to manufacture than a you know CD, even a mini disc in the case of the the GameCube. Mm-hmm. Um, the Animal Crossing one in particular was more expensive because it had a, a real time clock function built in. So that's like a battery um, and a, you know, it, it's a function on this, it's an extra piece on the right. uh, board that is um, providing that function. So, you know, that's expensive. And so rather than, you know, just continuing to produce that, um, they make kind of an, and they also couldn't quite fit everything they wanted to do necessarily in that first game. I mean, they were already, um, you know, coming up with additional ideas and additional things that could that um, you know would be nice to have. I I get into all of this on the book, but the the game, like many Nintendo 64 games, was originally supposed to be for the Nintendo 64 DD, um, which is a kind of like failed uh, peripheral <laughs> that only ended up coming out in Japan, but would have you know in theory expanded the capabilities of uh you know what you can put on a nintendo 64 game or um, Mm -hmm. their little discs with a k in this in this uh in this case so um i'm i'm getting a little rambly here but essentially um you know they were like this game is great we put out the nintendo 64 version let's make a slightly updated version Put a few more of these ideas in here and put it on the GameCube in Japan. That game is called um, Animal Forest Plus to so What's No Plus. So, uh, meanwhile in America, uh, there are people at Nintendo of America kind of kind of fighting to bring this weird game over here. Um, they're like, "No, I, I we think this is actually really good," and the people in Japan are like. I mean i guess but like we we made this very japanese it's a very right. japanese game like this is going to be a lot of localization and um sure you know <laughs> go for it so they're working from this um this Mori plus version which has got you know it's already on the gamecube um and that eventually big localization process um that is one of my favorite chapters in the book is um, all of the localization details in there um that comes out in the states and in the west is animal crossing Mm -hmm. and then in japan they're like you know we still we still have more ideas and these guys Mm -hmm. in america they um you know they added a bunch of stuff like they changed holidays and have like these american holidays in there and they added some american furniture and like that's Mm -hmm. that's really cool we want that back in japan too and so then they take it back to Japan an additional time. And, uh, they have all this e-reader functionality. Um, a lot of which was in the, uh, in the animal crossing that came out here and they're like, okay, we're going to call this one animal crossing E plus or animal forest E plus. So, To sum it all up, there are four versions of the original Animal Crossing, all distinct in their own way, but all based on the same game. Um, And then you could argue that, you know, the additional localization, like the European localization is kind of its own thing as well. So maybe there's five versions. The point is this game is about or this book is about kind of all of that wrapped together because they are all functionally the same game, but they are different versions of the same game. So um, that that are that are you know pretty distinct like they're not just uh you know that's got a different cover art or something like that they are very distinct versions of the same game and that's what the book is about.
0: no that's well again it, you, you said it, you you thought you were rambling but no it totally makes sense like if there's four different versions of it why not make a book of all four versions combined into one like you said and then obviously what the boss I mean, fight you can you, like
2: you Take any of them in a silo, either. You know, like the True. the development story of one of them is, is part a, of the development the story of all of them. So it's um, yeah, you, you can't. There's really no way to talk about just the Animal Crossing on the GameCube that we know here in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, And so it, you know, it ended up being a story about
0: all of it. There you go. Okay, this is another franchise I've never played over my lifetime. And I know it was the biggest game during the lockdown. Everyone was playing Animal Crossing on the Switch. Now, for someone like myself who's never played it, so I do own a Switch, is there any possibility or should I even attempt to dabble my feet into Animal Crossing or is it too late for me now?
2: Um, I don't think it's too late for you. I, I do, I will say that I think Animal Crossing New Horizons on the Switch is a fundamentally completely different game than, uh, Animal Crossing has been, um, throughout the rest of the series life. Um, I, that is definitely addressed towards the end of the book. Um, and, uh, that's something I think a lot of people are very surprised to hear from me, especially when that game was announced. Um, it's not a bad game. I um, I just think that it is. if you want the true Animal Crossing experience, um, you would do better to play any of the previous really? entries uh, than to play New okay. Horizons. That's not to say don't play New Horizons. Right, right. That's just to say that if you play New Horizons, I don't think you've played, you know... I think it's a going to be a pretty different experience than the rest of the series. I even think that just going back one step and playing Animal Crossing New Leaf on the 3DS oh. um, is a much more, uh, like, faithful to the original. I, I mean, I'm, I'm using these words not to say that, again, that New Horizons is, like, bad or poisonous or anything like that. It's just that um, it had kind of followed some... Um, Oh, what's the right way to put this? Like, what what is what is the word I'm thinking of? Like, there there's sort of tenets of the original game that are present in every game up until New Horizons, and then it sort of changes oh, some of its core
1: okay. it
2: core values, I guess. Sure. Like, um, a, a very like simple one to point out is um, up until that one. Um, the it was made pretty clear that you shouldn't try to keep playing the game all day. Like you, you're not meant to grind all day. Right. And in new horizons, you were kind of specifically, um, you know, enticed to grind all day. Like they have, they have new incentives in there. Um, that are like, you know, if you, okay, if you catch 20 fish today, you get a little reward or if right. you do this today. You get, and so, I mean, it's sort of, it, it it incentivizes the things that the previous games it kind of advised you not to do essentially I'm being a little vague here because I don't want to spoil the entire thing and no, I also I don't want to like
0: what I <laughs> I it... don't want to like totally talk you out of it, it's no, just, um, it... I, would, I would probably go for um,
2: something I mean again the, the first game is my favorite um, Wild World was the one that I probably spent the most amount of like literal hours in um, and new leaf, I think is probably like the most modern, you know, like still very, very approachable from a modern perspective, um, version of that game that still, I think is pretty faithful to, uh, what animal crossing was, you know, up until that point.
0: No, cause the whole time you were explaining that the thing that was going in my mind was comparing resident evil one to resident evil six and how far it went. And cause I think that's what you're trying yeah, pretty totally. much to explain, right? Totally.
2: And oh, well, Resident Evil 7, too, for what, for well,
0: what it's worth. I, I guess, yeah. But 6 <laughs> just went straight action, six, right? So yeah. it was like, okay, all you, all this is is just the characters. It has nothing to do with the actual original Scare tactics and all that other fun stuff that right. made Resident Evil what it was, right?
2: Yeah, and I'm not I'm not particularly attached to Resident Evil. That being said, I don't think anyone enjoys 6, but, um, you know, like,
0: <laughs> I actually true.
2: really liked Resident Evil 5, and I know that's a pretty big departure from the rest of the series, too, but, like, I'm not attached enough to, like, um, what the core tenets of that series is to care that it changed. But I completely, like, because I have this experience with Animal Crossing, I'm like, I completely get it if you were really attached to that and, you know, are upset with this game for those reasons.
0: Yeah, because it's hard. Like, it's I find it fascinating that the whole Mario formula works every single time every time they drop a, a new type of Mario game. But if you do that with any type of other genre, it's like, nah, we're sick of this, we've seen this, we don't care about it, whatever, whatever. So they have to try and evolve. But then if you've evolved too f- far, it's like what we're talking about now. And now it's taking away from the roots of the series and it's no longer what people love. So like, I don't know how Mario just does it. I don't know what it is. Like, like I said, I know it's a, they say it's the perfect game and the perfect formula, but there has to be something else involved. And I, I don't think it's just nostalgia because I mean, everything has nostalgia, right?
2: You've got you've got some some branching paths with the Mario series, at least. I mean, like well, Mario yeah. Odyssey is a very very different game than you know like Super Mario World or something like that. But but I agree that like the the new um, I hate that Nintendo that qualifier Nintendo uses the you know the <laughs> new Super Mario Brothers uh, games. Right. Like literally, they say the word new in the title. Not that I'm talking about the most current one. Um, <laughs> The, those are all, yeah. They're still like they've added co op and all of that stuff, but like they're still pretty similar to uh, the right? way Mario's always been. And yeah, I mean it, it's a winning formula, but um, there are definitely series that um, have to evolve or die. And I mean the the current series director of Animal Crossing, Aiki Goku, um, had this experience herself because the first game that she um, that you know she was really working on with animal crossing was uh animal crossing city folk for the Wii, which is um, the most widely panned version of animal crossing oh, overall it's okay. a, it's um and not because it's particularly bad but because it really didn't change much of anything um and that you know like there's there are two sides to this. I I think that New Horizons went way too far, but also mm-hmm. I completely understand that city folk, you know, did not go far enough, and that straddling that line, it's really difficult. And I think that um, you know, evolution in video games is like you are never going to be able to please everybody. And mm-hmm. I like I think music works this way too. You know, That's like. True. A band can't release the same album five times, but also if they change it too much, it's a problem. But if they don't change it enough, it's not. I mean, like, I, it's a complicated problem. But it's uh it's definitely something that, um, yeah, you can you can go too far with. I think.
0: No, I agree. And you brought up the DS a few times already through our conversation, and. The whole thing about the digital stuff all closing down and not being able to download the stuff anymore with the DS and the Wii U currently about to go offline with Nintendo. You own a physical store. Now, how important is it to have physical and digital together? Because there's always this argument that, oh, digital should go away or physical should go away. Why can't we just coexist with both?
2: yeah i mean at the end of the day it's a market problem um i think that there's always going to be some market for physical games because uh basically because we still have a vinyl market i mean that's kind of all the proof you need that's true but that it is you know i mean it's certainly a a winding down um you know kind of disappearing industry and i mean a lot of that does just straight up have to do with the cost of entry for it for um, for developers i mean mm. we have a lot of very very popular indie games now that come from two or three person studios that there's no way they could afford the you know it typically i think it's a lot more relaxed now but the minimums used to be you know ten thousand units on some of these things and wow. especially in like the cartridge era right. you're i mean you're talking about investing you know hundred thousand to millions of dollars wow. into something that's not a sure thing for you and so that's um you know from a development standpoint i completely understand why uh digital is friendlier in a lot of ways to the market um of course things like game pass are very friendly to um i mean even i use game pass and i both collect video games and own a game store um so like i i don't know exactly where i'm going with this with this but um you know we are we're just simply not in an era anymore where you can expect that everything is going to come out physically um, I think that it is always going there's always going to be a market for that but um, I can segue this into a very uh, complex issue that we're trying to solve here which is you know I think a lot of people um, the the eShop closing down obviously very uh, it, it's a problem and it's a, a problem for a lot of people and it's scary and everything and I think a lot of the responses to it tend to be things like, Well, Nintendo can't just do this to us or like Hmm. they can't they can't just wind things down and you know, from a from a business perspective, it's like, you know, Nintendo's like, Well why why would we keep this thing open that's losing us money? Mm -hmm. Um and I'm here to tell you that there is a way that both Both things can be true and we can still preserve things. Mm. Um, The first, obviously, and everyone, like this is not surprising anybody. There have already been a lot of people who have gone through and scraped the eShop and there are ROM sets online. And like piracy is is a part of of the preservation story. However, I don't think that it's fair to just be like, well, it's okay because we've always got piracy. I think that we can do better than that as a as a society, and I'm, I'm speaking very, very U.S.-centric right now because that's, the, that's where I am and sure. that's where my organization is, um, but something that we are doing at the Video Game History Foundation is, um, you know, if Nintendo doesn't want to host their own stuff or distribute their own stuff because it's, you know, it's an expense to them, um, then why would... Why are we not having that uh, ability to... Uh, Excuse me. let me start over um why are we not allowing libraries and archives and the people that do this preservation work to kind of step in and help this is how sure. all of the other industries operate we don't necessarily expect that warner brothers keeps their entire movie catalog right completely <laughs> available and you know ready um for all of time but we do expect that those films are somewhere and uh, this is becoming less and less of a uh, <laughs> of a good argument as streaming services take over, and mm. they are now back to experiencing the same problems that video games are experiencing. But like, right. um, in all of these other industries, libraries and archives are not only allowed to you know preserve this stuff; they're allowed to preserve it digitally. They don't necessarily have to have a physical object that they're preserving, right. and they also are allowed to share it uh, remotely and digitally with people. So if you want to rent a book from a library, you don't necessarily have to walk into the library and get the physical book and walk out with it. Mm -hmm. Most libraries rent a lot of eBooks now and they rent a lot of movies digitally. And this is something that every other industry has, you know, for the most part um, figured out, but uh, video games don't have this luxury right now. Video games are, uh, very, they've been very stifled mostly by the Entertainment Software Associations lobbying. Um, they are that's those are the people that they do some good stuff. They're the they're the ESRB, um, the rating system yeah. here in the U.S. Um, but they're the lobbying group for the video game industry, and they're lobbying for you know their clients best uh best interests in terms of money of so course. if they think their clients can still make money off of stuff then it's in their interest to protect that right. um however it's pretty clear that their clients are not doing that their <laughs> clients are releasing an apps or you know making the games in their back catalog available at a completely abysmal rate like just a uh, we're just an awful awful like it's not even close rate no one no one is doing a good job with this so um something the video game history foundation is working on right now um is we've been uh we've been working on a study to determine just how abysmal those numbers are mm. um for this next round of DMCA hearings um to kind of propose to the US copyright office like essentially hey this is ridiculous right. libraries and archives should have the exact same you know, capabilities to deal with video games as they do for all these other mediums. I agree. Um Yeah. <laughs> with, um, and, you know, that's, that is uh, a lot of institutions are very well funded. They have a lot of manpower. They in fact employ a lot of the people who have already been doing this work kind of underground on the side and right. um, That will allow. That's just kind of another channel for preservation, right? Like it's another very strong channel for uh, libraries and archives to be able to kind of throw their weight behind preserving video games and making them available to people. So, um, yeah, the numbers. (laughs) I'm very excited to be able to share the numbers because they are real bad. The amount of games that are still in some sort of like that are still available in some way. Legally from the rights holder, whether it's for free or whether it's you know to buy it on a on a storefront or um, you know stream or something along those lines, is, right. is absolutely abysmal, and that's not a shock to anybody. Um, but it is really really good ammo for um, hey you you have to you know you do have a duty to um, if not do the work to preserve these games yourself or keep them in circulation yourself to at least allow preservation institutions to do that work for you. So um, that's a, it's long winded, but um, I think it's a, you know, it's a very big part of the whole physical versus digital debate because we just, we can't force the market to go all physical and we can't force companies to provide all of their stuff forever. So, you know, we have to figure out what the next best option is and that's, um, you know making sure at the very least like institutions can be doing that and that there can be you know maybe even government money thrown behind this so
0: no and i agree because like the one thing like you said it fantastically too but the one thing i always go back to is like in digital form like the e store and all these type of stores when you go back to the old school catalog you don't have every single game that ever came out. And again, like you said, because. No,
2: not even close. Even, like, some exactly? Of for, like it's, some of it for no fault of the companies themselves. No, of the
0: course not. That's race what I'm got saying.
2: so tangled that, you know, I mean, the only reason GoldenEye and I took forever. Right? I'm sure. Perfect to, example. to become, yeah, to be available is because, uh, you know, that's a legal mess of, of different rights and stakeholders. And it gets even worse when you have companies that, you know, have been, uh, have transferred ownership several times and gone out of business and uh, come back from the dead in some cases. I mean, there's all kinds of complicated issues at work there that even if a company was, you know, putting their whole weight behind trying to keep everything available, they, they simply couldn't, like they just would not be able to.
0: See, but that's what I don't understand. If, like, the company folds and it's not sold or whatever, shouldn't this become public domain at that point? Like, how does it become resurrected by someone else and this and then held (laughs) hostage? Like, that's what I don't understand about this whole thing. I
2: wish. Yeah, I mean, the thing is when companies wind down, usually the assets and IP are sold to someone else and sometimes that someone else is a person or a holding group or Uh, all manner of things. Right. uh, I mean... I definitely feel like this exemption that we're fighting for is step one of like two hundred in reforming copyright law in general. Mm. um I think that there's an enormous amount of things that um you know when the copyright when the u s copyright system um first started and especially when the digital millennium uh copyright act dmca uh You know, came about like we just we lived in a completely different world that had no notion of the problems that today's world has. I mean, there was no streaming. There was no (laughs) so many of these things that just um, those could not have been a consideration when this uh, when these laws started to pass. So um, there's a lot of reform needed. I mean, in a perfect world, yeah, I would love to just straight up kick Disney off the throne there and be like, you cannot keep extending the public domain amount of years. Like, you know, it's it's rare that we have a single thing to point to, to be like, no, it's your fault. But we kind of do for copyright, and it's Disney. We have – they are – they are responsible for um, not all of the problems, but at the very sure. least, the fact that like none of us will live to see video games enter the public domain in any capacity. So, um, so, sad. You know that that sucks, and I would love to see that reformed. But it's it's one of those like you know a, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step kind of thing. It's like we're we're not quite at the let's knock Disney off their throne. Uh, part of the journey yet but boy would i love to get
0: there <laughs> <laughs> well again going back to pink gorilla then because this has been always my dream job you lived in my dream job working like at a sort of blockbuster-esque type of video game store like you know what i mean like who wouldn't who's into video games and movies like you know what i mean like that's the perfect job now you said you got you moved up the ranks now you're co-owner and all that so was it originally named pink gorilla did you rename it what was going on and why did you leave it as pink gorilla if it wasn't renamed
2: yeah, so um, the original store was actually owned by two people, um, named okay. Nathan and Greg, and uh, going back to 2005, they started a small little shop that was uh, like half Japanese import games oh. and half domestic games, and it was okay. called Pink Godzilla, and oh. it was in uh, the International District of, of Seattle. Um, and, uh, you know, it did, it did pretty well for a number of years. At some point, Greg dropped off and the, uh, the sole owner became Nathan. Um, it expanded, um, in 2009. Oh, you know what? This actually happens before the expansion. So, uh, there was a, uh, uh, like a card game, uh, not a trading card game, but just a, like a, I don't know, like a, like a tabletop card game, okay. um, that, uh, Nathan and some of the other people who worked there created um, called Pink Godzilla Dev Kit. And um, they started, you know, kind of selling this game and shopping it around. And they had a little play area at PAX that year, which, by the way, PAX in like 2006 was a teeny tiny, tiny little, right? little event. It was not nothing like it is now. That was a, you know, I mean, I think sometimes people forget that PAX is a, penny arcade expo it's a web comic that created a an event it's not you know it was not big yet um and as this you know this card game was doing pretty good and they started kind of selling it and shipping it and shipping it internationally and that's when toho uh, the uh, owner of the name godzilla was like you can't do this we're not gonna like you know we're not gonna sue you or anything right. but you can't do this and okay. so just kind of out of a out of precaution um in 2007, uh, the business was renamed to Pink Gorilla. so it was actually oh, only okay, Pink gotcha. Godzilla for like two years. It wasn't a very long time, um, and uh, you know, I mean, it was. It was. I think it's a cool name. <laughs> I, I wish it's that different. it could have. Sure. I think that. I think that there were ways to because there are other things called Godzilla. You can. Copyright law is tricky, and I am not a lawyer, but, like, <laughs> you can use the names of things sometimes as long as you are not actually, like, infringing in their industry at all, and you're, like, there's gotcha. basically, like, if there's no way that anyone could possibly mistake the two, there are things in Japan that use the Godzilla name that are not related to Toho, in, in fact. So there's, you know, but it was out of a, out of an abundance of precaution, and, um, you know, Pink Girl has been the name for well over a decade now, and um, I've... Yeah, we had we had no like no desire to change the name. I mean, I think that um, something that sets us apart from other game stores is that it was kind of made with a very uh, uh, Japanese sensibility in terms of design and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a mascot from day one. who used really bright colors and everything, and it was it was just a uh, and the way we lay out our stores, and in, in fact, as well is. Um, very similar to how a lot of game stores are laid out in Japan, the way that we um, kind of encase, uh, we, you know, we clean and test the games and then we encase them in plastic so that they oh. cannot have any more, uh, any more like dirt or dust Great. or anything come in. It's clean, tested and then sealed so oh, that, that's awesome. you you know, you're going to open up, open and it, it's going to be fresh when you get home. Um and we, and we hang them on the wall as opposed to like having them behind glass or, like um, you know, or a whatever. bookshelf. So yeah. it's, um, it's not, it's not exactly like game stores look in Japan, but it is definitely kind of, it takes a lot of those sensibilities. Um, and that's something that, you know, ever since I saw Pink Gorilla for the first time when I actually, it was before I moved here, even I, I visited mm. Seattle in like ugh, 2010, 2009, something like that. And, um and, you know, walked into the store and just immediately could feel like, okay, they're doing something a little different here. This is right. interesting. Um, so I've, I've never wanted to change that. I've only wanted to uh, uh, take it further.
0: <laughs> no, that's awesome. So it's safe to say when, if I buy a cartridge from your store, and I open it up. I don't have to blow into it and put it into my Nintendo. It'll work right off the bat. Exactly, that? yeah. Okay.
2: We've, we've already cleaned it, tested it, and in fact, if it has a, a, a save battery in it,
0: we have opened that up and, and oh, soldered wow. and a new one for you. So, yeah, it's a full full service experience. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so get it as fresh as possible. So you guys just deal with retro and import games, or do you also carry anything from the new generations of consoles? Yeah, it,
2: it's all of them. Oh, okay. I, I don't think... Yeah, I don't know that... There's, um, I think it would be difficult to be a game store specializing too much. Um, So we go every, we do uh, retro, we do modern, we do import. Um, I also import a lot of um, like merchandise from Japan. So we carry a lot of um, plushies and keychains and stickers and that sort of thing that are um, that I import directly from Japan. So you get some cool stuff here that um, you know is, is never going to otherwise be available in the states so um something we got in recently that i thought was really cool is they did a whole line of uh kirby horoscope stuff so it's like uh kirby dressed up as the different um astrological signs and then there's little sticker sheets and stuff too and it's like that would you know we we get kirby plushies in the states but we would have never gotten anything like that that's you know that's a very uh you yeah, know, that was made just for the Japanese market. So I like to bring a lot of that stuff over as well. And we do a little bit of trading card games as well. We don't <laughs> sell singles or anything, but we right. do sell, like, the, the packs and that
0: all of that. So it's been one of, or a few of the most rarest items you guys gotten from Japan.
2: Oh, from Japan specifically? Hmm. Uh, that's a great question, because... I, I tend, I mean, I do a lot of importing, but I don't do a lot of importing of like crazy rare stuff other mm-hmm. than for myself personally. So I have a lot of very, uh, mm-hmm. crazy rare stuff from Japan. Um, I, you know, my, as I alluded to earlier, I have a complete Swan set, which is, uh, you know, there's, uh, a, a little over 200 games, like 200 and. 15 or 220 something like that but there's also some really really rare stuff that i think most people don't count as like part of the quote-unquote set like how if you're an nes collector you may or may not count nintendo world championships or stadium events or something like that as part of the canonical set um so i have a uh (laughs) Every time I talk about this, I laugh because it just sounds so fake. But I, it's, oh, no. it's real. Okay. Um, it, <laughs> I have something called Mama Mite. It is okay. a pregnancy tracking device for your Wonder Swan. So it is a it is a Wonder Swan unit with okay. a like software in it as well, right. and then an infrared scale. And the, the software has a little infrared sensor. Okay. So you weigh yourself throughout your pregnancy and, like, log stuff. And it tells you, like, exercises you should be doing and really? what you should be eating. And There's some little mini games and stuff on it, okay. too. But anyways, I, mean, I've, I have uh, – <laughs> it took me about five years to find one. And I, wow. I say that meaning, like, it took five years for me to, like, see one exist on any auction site at all. Um, I only know of – three others in the whole world. Um oh, wow. so it's a yeah, that's <laughs> it's rare. a very yeah it's a very, very rare thing. It's not something you can really put like a dollar amount on because even I mean, I even ended up speaking to Tanita, which is the Japanese healthcare company that okay. um, you know, worked with um, you know, like created this essentially. Um and they're like, oh yeah, we have no idea how many sold we barely any like we <laughs> this is not a successful product this is very right. niche um also why do you have one strange <laughs> american right. girl what is what is, how did you find one uh, <laughs> that's funny. um i'm not joking they wrote a blog post about me the tanita website had a blog post about the weird american girl that found a mama Mite. so i
0: <laughs> wow look at that i
2: imagine that was very funny for them um <laughs> so that's probably the rarest thing that i have from japan i have some other cool stuff that people might think is cool um i think a lot of people might know about the game boy sewing machine that came out in america here i've heard uh, about
0: the, i've seen pictures yeah
2: yeah the singer isaac so it's actually based on um a product that came out in japan first oh. uh, uh there's a sewing machine company um in japan called jaguar no relation to the cars but okay. um cooler name <laughs> and they not only sold this um this first but they sold it in six different colors and then on top of that they sold an, uh, an upgraded embroidery machine with right. additional software so it could oh, do wow. was even more than the sewing machine that came out here for the game boy yeah. so um i have the embroidery machine wow. and then i also you know i at first i had the singer isaac the american one it's a nice like um it's that that nice aqua blue that's translucent that was everywhere in the early 2000s right. um but in Japan, they had a pink one, and I wanted the mm-hmm.
0: translucent pink one, so I've got one of those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. And you also brought, again, the Video Game History Foundation, of course, which you're the co-director. Now, is this a physical found? Like, do you have, like, a physical museum where you guys store stuff in, like, a warehouse to preserve? Or is it just, like, how you said you're fighting for rights for video games and preserving it that way?
2: So, we do have a physical archive. Um, oh, we don't okay. have a museum. We're uh, we're primarily serving, like, the foundation is meant to serve anyone who wants to, like, tell, like, research and tell the stories of video game history. So we're, we're an archive. It's a physical archive, like a, um, think like a small library, basically. Okay. Um, our space is in Emeryville, California. It is not nearly big enough for all of the things that we I want to be able to do with it and all of the things that we do have, but it's at least... Um, this is our, our second space and it's at least, um, it's big enough at this point, like to, to showcase what we, what we do and and what we have and everything. Um, but you know, hopefully someday we're like the size of a real library. Um, but yeah, we've got, uh, 10,000 plus, uh, magazine, video game magazines and publications. Um, we, collect i mean i'll back up a little bit because basically our um what we're what we're trying to do the mission there is that we are trying to not only preserve video game history but kind of educate and share Uh and the way way i like to describe it is essentially if you want to write a book about video games like a boss fight book about animal crossing or something for Mm -hmm. instance um you're gonna need to do a lot more than just play that gamecube game which i did in my research i played the gamecube game But I also needed things like, okay, what were reviewers saying about the game at the time? Um, What did Nintendo send the press? Like, what did Nintendo want people to know about this game at the time? Um, And, you know, if if we were a little luckier, I'd have, like, development materials as well. But, you know, Nintendo doesn't exactly uh, leave those lying around. Um, (laughs) But we do have development materials from other projects, particularly um, (laughs) a lot of our developer collections come from... uh, People who worked in the Chicago area. Chicago was a really thriving part of the video nice. game scene for a very long time. Um, and people in Chicago have basements. People in San Francisco and Seattle or the rest of the video game industry do, yeah. not, gotcha. <laughs> they do not have space or basements. So a lot of that stuff ends up in the trash. Um, but, the, you know, the, we've had a pretty good amount of luck with people who worked at, uh, you know, like Midway or, or Konami. When Konami had offices out That's there, true. you know, just yeah. uh, Acclaim, like these, there are a lot of things from the actual creation of video games too. So a if, if, long way of saying if you're trying to write a book about video games, write an article about video games, make a documentary. Um, you know you're going to need additional resources and that's the kind of resources that we work on so we actually don't collect physical games at all we think that there are plenty of other great avenues that you can use to get physical games there's a lot of other libraries and archives that are already doing a great job of that um but that there's not a lot of concentrated effort being put into uh the rest of the stuff to you know these contextual materials I will say the Strong Museum of Play is also a fantastic resource for all of this stuff out in Rochester, New York. Um, they do collect a lot of this stuff. Okay. Um, they are, as their name suggests, a Museum of Play, so it's a, it's not just video games, but like toy catalogs oh. and that sort of thing too. Gotcha. Um, and we are fully video game dedicated, so um, you know that's we work with them a lot, though we're we're friends.
0: <laughs> there's
2: more than one of us. There's more than one of us out there doing this work. But we are um, we are focused entirely on the on video games.
0: No, that's fantastic. Okay, a couple more questions before I let you go and we wrap this up. Yeah. Okay, what's the oldest item you guys have procured over the years, and how do you distinguish what to put or to give to the foundation versus what you want to keep yourself?
2: Oh <laughs> well, if it's historically important, it goes to the foundation. Okay. I don't. I don't even <laughs> actually take stuff from my store anymore these days unless it's a um a brand new game that i want to play like sure. but it's sitting right next to me here but i just picked up octopath traveler from my oh uh,
0: i can't um, wait to play that yeah
2: <laughs> from my store to play so like i will That's occasionally awesome. take things from the store but for the most wait, part i've kind of wrapped up my own game collecting um okay. and yeah anything anything historically important um you know absolutely goes to the foundation um So I don't struggle with that a whole lot, (laughs) thankfully. And I'm sorry, what was the other question? And
0: the oldest item you guys procured over the years.
2: Ooh. um, We do have a journal from, like, the 60s that mentions – oh, I can't remember what it mentions, and I really wish I had this handy, but – you know, there were, there were not video game magazines for a very long time. And obviously there was no video game industry in the sixties at all, but there were, you know, people in labs creating, you know, electronic entertainment that Mm -hmm. was not really, uh, yet out there in the world. So, uh, we have, um, we have something from that time period, and that's—it's okay. weird because you know a lot of archives will have things that are like, "Oh, this is from the 1500s," and we're like, "Oh my god, we have something from the 60s," <laughs> you know? Like that's <laughs> right? the game industry is just so young. Like it's—it's it's such a brand new industry that I even know, if you go, hilarious. yeah, I mean, you can—you can go to like the first. It starts getting blurry because obviously electronic and electromechanical entertainment goes back further than that, and right. like, there is a lot of crossover between the two, but. Um, as far as pure video game stuff goes, I mean, uh, no one was thinking like that until, you know, at the at the earliest, the 70s, and even then it was still just kind of like, okay, what are these electronic toys? Are these here to stay? You know, nice. what, <laughs> it wasn't, even then it wasn't really like, um, you know, it, it wasn't until... Atari was a very large company, basically, that people were like, okay, That's maybe true. this is its own industry.
0: <laughs> exactly. No, I agree. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much for coming aboard today. Really appreciate. Plug whatever you want, whatever you need to promote. Floor's all yours. Go for it.
2: Thank you. Um, wow, this, this one's always tough for me. So um, the Boss Type Books kickstarter i believe is over but all these yeah. books will be available later this year um i will be selling them on uh the pink gorilla website as That's well nice. um i don't have a release date for my book yet but i'm hoping it is late this year um so pinkgorilla games.com will be a place to buy that as well as the boss fight books website um and uh, let's see. You can follow the Video Game History Foundation. The website is gamehistory.org. We are also at gamehistory.org on you know Twitter, or Instagram, all of that good stuff. Um, and then I am at Kels Lewin on Twitter. So if you want to follow my work.
0: Nice. And for myself, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter under Finger Styles. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, The Podcast App. Email us your thoughts, suggestions, comments, anything you want to get off your chest at App at gmail.com. Please rewind to the top of the show. Support those fine sponsors because if it helps them out, most definitely helps me out. And most importantly, please rate, subscribe, review on all major platforms. And if this is the first time you listen to the podcast and you like what you heard, please go back and listen to episodes featuring the likes of Victor Lucas, Marissa Roberto, and David L. Craddock, just to name a few. All right, Kelsey, one last question before I let you go. If there was no Animal Crossing and you did not have to write a book about or want to write a book about Animal Crossing, what would be your next pick?
2: Over a book? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to figure that out myself right now. Really? Even, yeah, I want. I want to write another book. That was fun. Um, I don't know. I I, I can't think of. I, I want it to be something more um, more than one game, but I don't want to okay. get too big, or it's going to be get completely unwieldy, so um, you know, I think it would be really fun to dive into the history of maybe one of the game uh, magazine publications or something like oh, that. Um, I also think, idea. you know, a history of really any video game company would be fun. My favorite niche is I really love um, it, you, as you can probably figure out based on some of the stuff I've talked about in my collection, I really love the weird intersection mm-hmm. between video games and like practical real worlds. Um, uses so things like the game boy sewing machine or a pregnancy tracker for the <laughs> wonder swan um, and there were a couple of of companies that really leaned into that so i would really love to kind of explore more of that as well
0: on that note she's kelsey i'm steve this is a podcast peace